0: You are listening to Calvary Spokane's prophecy update series, What's the World Coming To? Good morning and welcome. Uh, would you turn with me in your Bibles once again to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. We read there last week. We're going to actually read a, read a little bit less today. I just want to look at the first three verses. And uh, as I'm working through this series of messages, uh, one of the things I, I realize is I'm going to be placing a lot of emphasis upon the spiritual or religious developments that lead up to and become part of the events of the end times. This is not as sensational a topic as some people would like. We love to get talking about cryptocurrencies and the mark of the beast and things of those nature, Um, and who knows, we may be able to stretch this out for another six months and cover all that. Um, and, then, and there are dramatic changes there, but one of the areas I feel that often gets overlooked is the more subtle cultural changes, particularly within the church itself, in leading into what we find that Paul warned would be one of the signs. In fact, Jesus spoke of it himself when he said that many would depart from the faith. Uh, would you stand with me as we begin by reading, though, in chapter 2, verse 1, once again? <clears throat> And Paul is speaking, saying, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the second coming of Christ, and apart from that, our being gathered to Him, which I believe is the rapture of the church, he says, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come, or in other words, you missed it. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. Then he clarifies, that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask as we continue in our look at these all things and times that your Holy Spirit would continue to help us not only comprehend the text, but comprehend how it is relevant to the world that we're living in today. We ask God for wisdom from above. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, as you recall, I began this series of studies by talking about Satan's ancient agenda, That of establishing what is commonly referred to even today in many political circles as the new world order, which is in some way kind of a code language for a one world government, one world economy, and one world religious system. And it's one that not only controls basically the religion, but it controls everything. And we're told that ultimately it is doomed to destruction because it is a departure from the way of truth, departure from the way that God planned and intended. Particularly because as we read last week in verse four of the same chapter, that it's led by the Antichrist or the beast, or here Paul calls him the lawless one. It's an interesting term. It means not that he just simply doesn't follow speed limits and breaks the laws, but it means that he is living in opposition to God. The God who is the great lawgiver, the author of the Ten Commandments and the moral standards and righteousness of the world, that set of standards by which the world will be judged as sinners or not. uh, Basically, he is in opposition, a rejecter of God's law, and in its place, creating a different value system which is uh, presently happening very quickly around us. But it says his objective will to be opposed and to exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, proclaiming himself ultimately to be God. So again, one of the things that becomes clear is that even though his objective is political power, military power, economic power, really where he's trying to drive the agenda is to a religious power that he becomes the object of mankind's worship. And as we spoke last week, that's essentially declared by Satan himself to Jesus when he tempted him in the wilderness and said, if you worship me, I will give to you all the kingdoms of the world. And so, again, I say that sometimes we tend to overlook the religious dynamics that are taking place in the world around us. And fail to realize that that really is the ultimate objective. This is really where the enemy is going. He wants to be worshiped in the place of God. In fact, that is the beginning of all sin. The first sin was committed not on earth, it was committed in heaven, according to Isaiah 14, where Lucifer lifted himself up and said, I will become like God. I will sit in his throne. I will become the Almighty. And he's been attempting to do that ever since. And even though you and I have had the advantage of reading to the end of the story, we know he loses in the end, nonetheless, many people will become losers because they don't realize they're following a loser. Blind will follow the blind, Jesus said, and they'll both end up in a ditch. And so part of what our obligation is, and particularly within the context of the church, is to inform people of what Scripture says that you might understand and be enlightened, And be able to make a critical distinction between truth and falsehood, between what the Bible calls light and darkness, and that we choose to follow the Lord in the way that He has said we will find life. We talked also last week about the role of the church in the end times and that I believe that what Paul is telling us further on in verse 6, that the only thing that has hindered Satan from being pulling forth his agenda is in fact the presence of his church or Christ's church in the world. When he said that Satan will, uh, he, he, that he is being held back so that he may be revealed at the proper time and that he will continue to do so until the church is taken out of the way, that there is this restraining force that I believe is actually the church. Now, in fairness, I'll admit to you that there are people who would disagree with me and say they think it's something else, but that's their right to be wrong. But I believe it's the church because Jesus assured us that even the greatest powers of hell would never prevail against his church. And historically, the evidence seems to validate that, that even though the church has been the target of spiritual and physical and military and political opposition since the very beginning, Benny, As one writer once put it, that many hammer has been worn out beating on that anvil, that as men have tried to beat the church out of existence, they end up having their hammer beaten and broken, but the church still sustains and maintains no matter what the circumstances that are around it. But we find that he has appointed a time in which he will remove his church, I believe in that moment, will remove that restraining force and then, quite literally, all hell is going to break loose. That's when we're going to see the launching of what we call the tribulation period. And we'll have to get in more in detail about the chronology of those events. But these are all things that will proceed, that they, as we talked about last week, seeing a rise of a desire for one world government or a new world order, as we talked about last week, or also seeing things within the church that would be changing as well. That it really explains why the church has been the focus of the enemy's hatred for a very long time. That externally he has persecuted the church, but also just as heavily internally he has sought to lead the church into false doctrine. And the list of these doctrines go on forever and ever if we want to talk about Judaism, the Judaizers or the Gnostics or the Pelagians or the Arians. And there's all these names of all these different heresies. And they all began within the first few centuries of the church and have continued to move forward and amazingly have a way of being recycled so that when guys like Don Brown write the, uh, uh, you know, his, his book on, on Jesus and all of its nastiness and its... Make believe stuff. Uh, you know, it, 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 the Da Vinci code, code, it was called, but it really is just a lot of make believe stuff based upon Gnostic theology that began in the third and fourth century after the time of Christ. So we see this kind of stuff coming and going and then being recycled and repackaged and resold as if it's a new insight or a new revelation. But at the end of the day, it always has the same objective, and that is to undermine the church by undermining its reliance and dependence upon the Word of God. Now, you might ask, why would God allow these things to happen? And the answer is very simple, that on one hand, it purifies the church, You only know what the Bible really says when you're challenged by someone who says, does the Bible really say that? Is that really true? Can the Bible really be relied upon? How do you answer that question except you take it upon yourself to discover if what you're reading is actually factual, historical, reliable, and truly the Word of God or not? But secondly, it not only perfects or purifies the church, it also tends to purge it. When John makes that little cryptic statement in in his first letter when he said there were those who went out from us because they never really were of us, that Jesus talked about how that in the kingdom of God there would be all sorts of things in that tree, like he says, birds will come and nest in it that don't belong there. There are things he said that would happen that we would essentially look at them and say, well, they're not really one of us. In fact, that's one of the reasons we find out 26 out of the 27 books in the New Testament, they each have reference to some kind of false doctrine, false teaching, or threat that was coming into the church, and the exhortation by the writers that we do whatever we can to confront it and to reject it. In fact, Jesus himself really kind of threw the gauntlet down heavily when he said in chapter 7 Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Again, he says in chapter 24 of Matthew, watch out that no one deceives you. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many. In fact, Paul said that the deception wasn't going to be necessarily something that was completely outside the vocabulary of Christianity. But even worse, they would use the same language of the church, but they would give it new definitions. When he wrote to the Galatians, he said that they're coming in with a different gospel, which is really not a gospel at all, and is really not a different one after all. But he says it's a perversion of the gospel of Christ. It doesn't take a lot of insight to look over the history of Christianity and find that the church has been presented with all sorts of false gospels. For example, we have a huge organization in this part of the country in particular called the Latter-day Saints, and they believe that they present the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, nothing they teach has anything whatsoever to do with the gospel. There's not a word of gospel in it and they rely upon a a different text they call more inspired than the Bible and that's the Book of Mormon. The only problem is that Mormonism doesn't base any of its theology on the Book of Mormon, which even makes it more confusing. But then again, people who wear strange underwear do a lot of strange things. But the bottom line is, I'm sorry, does that sound like I'm mocking them? Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, Uh, but anyway, The ludicrousness of somehow wearing the right underwear is going to help you spiritually. I'm sorry. But later what Paul went on to exhort us is that it is incumbent upon us to guard against these falsehoods and, and, and these perversions, these twistings, these changing, the alteration of the message. I remember how as a young Christian, I got really confused because I'd come to Christianity out of Eastern mysticism, although I was not completely disconnected from the Eastern mysticism I had been in before. And people in Eastern mysticism would say, well, we've had the born experience, born again experience. They said, oh really? That's great. They said, yes, the clouds of our mind parted and Christ revealed himself to us in our consciousness. And I read the Bible and I thought, wait a minute, that's not what the Bible's talking about. The Bible says Jesus will come in the clouds. He will set his foot upon the Mount of Olives. And when he shows up, he's gonna be here for real. He's not gonna just be a figment of my imagination. And yet that kind of terminology is used throughout our culture and given new meanings and new definitions and most people don't really catch it because I think as Courtney was sharing about their experience, increasingly, people don't know anything about the scriptures or the Bible or the gospel or the message of redemption and hope as it's presented to us. But Paul says it's incumbent upon us as he wrote to Timothy and said, correctly handle the word of truth. Don't just handle the Bible, but do it correctly. That it's written in a historical context, that it has, it's self-defining, it's self-explaining. It is not something that I can pick and choose and pull apart and take out of it what I want and leave out parts that I don't want. So that we hear people all the time say, well, even Jesus said, judge not lest ye be judged. And, you know, essentially what they're saying is that if you see something that you disagree with, well, you have to pretend that you don't. And it's really a total twisting and perversion, not understanding even what Jesus was actually meaning to say to us. But Paul said on, the reason he said we need to be correctly dividing the word of truth is because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They won't put up with it. They won't allow you to talk about it. But after their own lust, they will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. In other words, that you'll see a rise of people, and I would suggest that even within the church, whose messages are modified or tailored to tickle people's ears and to appease their sensual desires, either by insertion of things that are not true, or more commonly, by simply omitting the things that other people might find offensive. So that increasingly what we're seeing in the church, and later on I'll give you a few examples, we're seeing that churches are choosing just not to address certain biblical topics. Things like hell, for example. Even though Jesus spoke on 11 different times and at some length and in some detail, basically knowing that it was a fate awaiting those who rejected his message and not wanting them at any cost to go there if at all possible, he made a point to make it a point. And yet we find that there are those today who just simply say, look, all dogs go to heaven. All trails lead to the same summit. And every religious system results in the same consequence. What Paul really foresaw was a time when a kind of hybrid, aberrant Christianity would arise. And he described it, in writing to Timothy, saying it would have a form of godliness, but it would deny its power. It would be absent of the power. In other words, it would be something that would take the symbols of Christianity, but rob it of all of its substance so that it becomes nothing more than a paper tire. There's nothing there beyond just the outward signs, the outward symbols. And I find it amazing today that probably one of the most popular forms of jewelry we find worn by both men and women today is the cross. It's extremely popular, and it's kind of ironic because the cross in Roman culture, when it was most used as a means of execution, was considered something that shouldn't even be referenced in polite company. You didn't talk about cross, you didn't use the word because it was the form of the most humiliating and base execution that somebody could be subjected to. You know, it would be like you and I wearing little things on our necklace, like little tiny electric chairs or little gas chambers or a literal, little, some now, you know, syringes to help people be put to death or put to sleep by an injection. We, and people say, oh, what's that about? Well, I'm just celebrating the death of people. And yet, it has been stripped of all of that meaning for most people, and it's just simply an item of jewelry. Now, I'm not saying that you need to to stop wearing it. We'll bring by the offering plate and you can drop it in there. (laughs) I'm I'm joking, really. Yeah, I am, yeah. Uh, (laughs) But I'm just simply saying that we have to understand that if I'm gonna wear a cross, do I really understand what it's saying and what I'm seeking to declare? Because that's the problem. We have a culture increasingly that just sees it as a graphic form. And don't understand the graphicness of the image that it communicated. But he said there would be people who would, they'd have this form of godliness, but when it really came down to it, the power of a changed life, the power of it to really work in and through them, to transition who they were from light into darkness, to give them a whole new direction and courage and value and vision for their life. Well, that doesn't happen. They change outwardly by their symbolism, but inwardly they remain the same. And I think about that every time I, I, I screw up the courage enough to watch another Hollywood or music awards show. And I watch some rapper who's known for singing a song that degrades women and mocks God and elevates drugs and all this evil that God says are, are destroying the world. And they sit there and say, I want to thank God for all of this. And I, you know, I just, I mean, my brain just goes, you know, somebody just threw mud in my gears and I can't even put my, my, I get up and dance around the room and do all this frustrated expression because I thought, how do they get away with that? This is why I believe that Jesus left us. In fact, he, in chapter seven of Matthew, it's kind of crazy. He almost begins with this warning to everyone when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. But only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. He's not talking about being perfect. None of us are even close to that. But do we do what God wants with our life? In the, in the bigger picture, in, the, in this end of the day, when we, when we come to the summary of our life, am I living saying, God, I, I want your will to be done. I want your kingdom to come. Because he said, those are the ones who will belong to me, not the ones who say, oh, praise the Lord. He says, because then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And it's interesting, even the term evildoers there, it's Anomia in the Greek literally is the same term. And it's used as a title. It's a verb here. It means lawless one. And it's the same thing that's given as the title we saw in chapter 2 of Thessalonians for the Antichrist, the lawless one. And again, the lawless one doesn't mean that simply you break laws. It means you reject the authority of God as the ultimate giver of laws, the ultimate judge. It's a rejection of God. He says, you're people who say that you know me, and yet you reject my authority over your life. That you don't blink and you don't blanch and you don't blush in the things that you do. You don't come to me and say, Father, forgive me for what I have done. You just simply say, well, God knows my needs, so therefore I'm not going to feel bad about it. Many, I'm afraid, are going to be like those who Jesus addressed when he talked to the church of Sardis. And he said, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You have this outward reputation, but you don't really have life. Nor is everyone who claims to be a Christian or at one time has recited even the sinner prayer have a lock on the rapture. Well, I said that prayer once, so therefore when the rapture comes, I know I'm going to go. Because if Revelation 3, 8 through 10 is speaking of the rapture of the church, and I think in the context, it is. He talks to the Philadelphian believers who are one of two churches that were suffering intense persecution. He speaks to seven churches in Revelation. Five of them are doing just fine, and he says, you're in trouble. But the two of them who are going through intense sufferings and hardships, he said, you're going to be blessed. In fact, he said to the church of Philadelphia, because you have kept my word, have not denied my name, imply that they're times of persecution, and have endured patiently. In other words, you've stayed the course. I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to those who live on the earth. There's only one trial that fits into that description. It's what comes in the very next chapter called the tribulation. He says, I will keep you. I believe this is one of the passages that guarantees the rapture of the church. But I think more important, it's it's that we understand that not everyone who says they are the church are actually of the church, even though they may be in, in the church. Because as Paul told us in what we read today, that before that takes place, there's going to come a great departure, a great falling away. The word is apostasy. He translates in the NIV, rebellion. I don't particularly appreciate that uh, translation because that word apostasia as a rebellion ties into the secular use of that word at the time. But the religious and biblical use of the word always means a departure from the faith. A walking away from Christ. Paul tells us that before the rapture, this is going to happen because these are people who say they're Christians, but you have not kept my word. In other words, your word is not central the central authority in my life. And again, don't miss, miss my message. I'm not talking about being perfect. But I mean, in keeping his word, part of keeping his word is being willing to confess sin. It's being willing to say, Lord, I lied and I shouldn't have. I stole, I shouldn't have. I I committed this transgression and that transgression. And God, forgive me. That's part of keeping His Word as much as it is doing the right things that we're supposed to do. Have you kept my Word? And it really comes down in my mind. What is the central authority of your life? And for many of us, the choice comes down to it's either the culture or it's Christ. At the end of the day, it's either the culture or the Christ. That you have not denied my name. That when it became difficult, you didn't pretend like you didn't know me, or basically act like you weren't really a Christian. But you stood your ground and took what was going to come because you had named my name. And you—they are the people who don't endure. They don't endure. They fall away when it becomes difficult. It's an interesting study in itself to look at the history of the church and realize that as every great persecution came upon the church, and there were 10 of them under the first 200 years of Roman history, that large numbers of people who were professing faith in Christ left the faith because they didn't want to lose their life or their possessions. And the great challenge after Christianity became legal, and Constantine was that the first quote-unquote Christian uh, emperor, and that's a debatable issue, but the simple fact was they said, what do we do with all these people who have left the faith and now are coming back because the Christianity is being endorsed by the emperor, and it becomes... Popular and actually, it gives you an advantage if you are a Christian. And now they're flooding back into the church because they see that same advantage. It was a long debate. They finally decided not to try to deal with it, but just simply hope that people would get saved. But the simple fact is, it's an issue that you and I need to carry personally and address personally. Although there have been Many from every age that we could describe as people not keeping his word. I believe that the time we're in right now is a bit different, and maybe that's my limited perspective. But I see things that I I can't explain any other way. You see, we live in a unique time for a lot of reasons, but never before in the history of humanity has the Bible, has God's word been more available been more researched more studied and more substantiated in terms of its reliability i tell people you may not like what the bible says but one thing is not a valid honest argument is that what it says today is different than what they wrote thousands of years ago. We have the textual evidence. We have the research. It's beyond question that what we're reading today is essentially almost in every regard, even to very basic words, the very things that were written in the very beginning by the, in the original autographs of the text. To argue otherwise is just simply to prove that you don't know what you're talking about. But having said that, we find that in spite of that, the Bible also which has proven to be the most accurate, reliable, and authoritative text spiritually, religiously, in the history of the world, yet fewer and fewer Christians truly believe that. Fewer and fewer Christians, particularly in the Western world, believe that the Bible is accurate, that it's reliable, and it's authoritative. Now, am I saying this just because I'm hanging around with the wrong kind of people? No. In fact, Barner Research Group, which does a lot of religious research and surveys on topics of this nature, set out to find out if that was actually true, and they were shocked by the results they came from they came up with. They found that when they dealt with the six, uh, six fundamental teachings of the Bible, not there are actually some 14 different ones we could talk about, but six fundamental teachings that are really kind of lower shelf items that anybody who is truly a Christian could easily know which is the right box to check. What are those six fundamental truths or teachings? Well, number one, that there is such a thing as absolute moral authority. In other words, there are some things that are absolutely true. They're true with a capital tree. They're always true. They're not just situationally or environmentally or culturally or relatively true. They're true all the time without regard. They are truth in all capital letters. Do you believe that there's absolute moral truth? And see, that's the first question they asked. Do you believe that? The second question they asked, the Bible is totally accurate in what it teaches. Number three, Satan is real. Number four, can a person earn their way to heaven? Number five, did Jesus live a sinless life? Number six, is God the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe? This survey was given only to those who profess to be Christians And out of the group, they found that only 9% believed all six of those. Now, you have to understand, in some ways, those six statements are interlocked. You can't kind of, if you're picking and choosing, it realizes you have not given very much thought about these things. Because they're all interrelated. They all, one hinges upon the other but they only found 9% of those who profess to be believers actually hold to that. And when they looked at the group, subgroups, like from 18 to 23 years of age, the very group that Courtney says they're reaching for the most part through their ministry, you know what the percentage was of those who agreed with all six of those? One half of 1%. One half of 1%. In a follow-up study they did, they asked those Christians, so if you don't believe these things, then what do you believe? And it's interesting how they answered. In fact, they gave kind of this statement in the beginning about their results. He says, we have observed an increasing pluralism, relativism, and moral decline in the church. It is striking how pervasive some of these beliefs are among people who are actively engaged in the Christian faith. Now, pluralism, what does that mean? It means You got your truth and I got my truth. You know, we don't have to believe the same thing because what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me. So we'll just respect the fact that we all believe the same thing or we believe different things, but it's all the same and it doesn't really matter. Now, you have to understand that that's a logical inconsistency. I love the debate that Rabbi Zacharias had with an American college professor on a university campus. And where the professor made this argument, he says, you have to understand, Mr. Zacharias, that in the West, we see things as being either or, but in the Far East, in Hinduism, they see it as uh, either and both, or both and. He said, not either or, but both and. And Zacharias, who is interesting, was raised a Brahmin, who was a Hindu until he came to Christ, who lived and grew up in India, should understand how the Eastern world thinks better than this college professor, but somehow that slipped his attention. He said, sir, even in India they believe in either or, because when it comes to cross the street, it's either you or the bus, but it can't be both. And that's a simple reality. You and I know we live in an either-or world. We know that if it's snowing or it's raining, we have to do things to adjust our life to accommodate that reality. And if we want to be one of those, you know, thimble brains who says, well, nature is our friend, I just tell them, go for a run on a cold winter day and see how friendly nature is. It'll kill you and not care. You're just more useful compost, okay? I mean, there's a certain level of nonsensicalness that is peddled out there as intellect or understanding. And the problem is it doesn't work in the real world. So to say simply, well, you've got your truth and I've got truth. You see, that's, that's the, one of the first things you learn in basic logic You know, you both can be wrong. One of you can be wrong and the other right, but you can't both be wrong and be both right at the same time. If you hold contradictory views, they're contradictory. There has to be a recognition that we do not believe and agree in the same thing. But you see, many people, rather than having a nasty or uncomfortable moment, would just simply say, well, you know, you've got your faith and I've got my faith. And, you know, I'm one of those irritating people, it says, yeah, but what is your faith based in, and will it stand up the test of time? Will it hold you up when it comes to eternity? They don't like me. (laughs) Or there is this idea of relativism, relativism, that there are no absolutes. And I love this. Increasingly, I hear this kind of nonsense coming from people. Well, you know, if I decide who I am and what I am and what gender I am, that's up to me, it's not up to you. You know, you can be any gender you want, just stay in your bathroom and don't come into mine. Because we're talking about basic biology here. <laughs> and I love this. One is out talking to, to uh, Bruce Jenner, AKA, what's her name? And, and the interviewer goes, well, <laughs> How do you feel about the biological side of your challenge? Oh, I don't even get into that. I bet you don't because the chromosomes don't lie. (laughs) You're either a man or you're a woman. And to begin to say, well, there is no relative truth, which is interesting when we talk about moving into the age of scientism. But then there is this simply, he said, the moral decline. You see, the point is that if you remove all the landmarks, then you don't know where you're going anymore. And we've allowed a whole generation to go undefined. We don't want to be clear on what is right and wrong, what is true. And we can't even tell them what is male and female any longer. And then we wonder, why do they grow up, grow up with gender confusion? It's not surprising. But even in surveying the church, they found that 30% of professing Christians believe in what's a new spirituality. That means essentially universalism, reincarnation, and karma. See, karma is not a biblical concept because basically karma says, what, if you do good, good will come. If you do bad, bad will come. The Bible says, no, you may do good and suffer for it, which is more like reality than the dreamy world. And the idea is somehow I get to heaven by being good enough. And the idea ultimately, universalism, that everybody gets to go to heaven. And I've heard Christians say to me, well, I just can't imagine God sending, a loving God sending people to hell. And my argument is, He doesn't. They make that choice all on their own. They choose to reject the loving God who died on the cross for them and instead embrace a fantasy of their own ability to be good enough to save their own soul. They found 10% of them embrace secularism or what we call scientism. And that's basically the idea that you can only know truth by science. And so we say, say things like, well, science, the science is settled. Have you ever studied the history of science? How many times science has been wrong? Absolute truth in science lasts about 20 years. Did you catch that? <laughs> It lasts about 20. What they were saying was absolutely true 20 years ago. Now they're saying, well, that's not really accurate. I'll never forget it, taking a, an anthropology class in college. And I, was, uh, I got to know this girl who was, uh, had been forced to take Anthro one because she had skipped it. She was working on her master's degree, and they made her go back and take it. So she became my study partner, and she was good looking too. But that had nothing to do with it. But anyway, but... We're going through some one of the textbooks and she's kind of helped me through it. And I read something in, about one of, the, <laughs> one of the fossil finds and stuff. And she goes, well, we actually know that's not true anymore. And I said, wait a minute, <laughs> back up the bus. What do you mean it's not true? It's in the book right here. She says, I know, but it costs too much to make the corrections in the book, so they just leave it in there. But when you get into graduate school, then you realize, well, that's not actually true anymore. We know that's not accurate. And the more you dig, the more you find that that is more the case that 90% of what ends up in the textbook is not stuff that's been proven empirically by science experimentation, but it's stuff that has been extrapolated by limited conclusions based upon a limited amount of information, and therefore it's sold as fact. And if you want to get your degree, you better agree with it. The 23% of Christians they found are postmodernists, Postmodernism essentially believes that right and wrong is is a relative concept. And 15% they found were basically Marxist socialists. They believed that the government should control all the resources so that there's fairness and equity upon the earth. As the author of the study, George Barnard, later noted, he said, there are several troubling patterns, he said, to take notice. First, although most Americans consider themselves to be Christian and say they know the content of the Bible, less than one in ten demonstrates such knowledge through their actions. Most people say they're Christians, they know the Bible, but only one in ten actually lives their life in a way that demonstrates that. He secondly said that parents are not focused on guiding their children to have a biblical worldview, because you cannot give what you do not have. And most parents don't possess such a perspective on life. Why does it matter? Well, it matters in a, in a philosophical sense because if something is true, then it's real. If it's real, it's true. But if I believe something is true that's not real, well, Jesus put it this way, the blind will lead the blind. He says, if the darkness that's in you if the light that's in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The psalmist, David put it very simply, he says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What we find is that in our culture in particular, the very foundations upon which it is born is being torn apart. And they started with, of course, the Bible and, and, and getting that out of the schools and, and removing prayer and all that kind of stuff. And most of us went, well, that's too bad, but we'll just keep on going on. But now you find that they're even attacking the founding fathers of our nation and wanting to tear down their statues uh, based upon some uh, moralistic uh, privilege of theirs. But the simple fact is that you remove the whole basis. Eventually what they'll just say is the constitution itself was written by slave owners, therefore we shouldn't follow it, even though that's actually not true. That 52 of our founding fathers were actually pastors and not slave owners. Most people don't realize that. You see, this lack of biblical knowledge and the resultant influence of non-Christian thinking has led to major shifts in the church. And, And in some ways it happens subtly because we want to be able to connect with the culture but I would say agree with Os Guinness who once said, the fastest way to becoming irrelevant is striving to be relevant because the gospel is always relevant because it's foundational and it never changes. Its truth addresses the needs in your and my life today just as it did my parents and my grandparents and their parents before them hundreds of years ago. The soul of man does not change. The needs eternally of your soul does not change. Therefore, the Word of God shouldn't be changed. But even today, over 20 major denominations around the world have, have changed their, their position towards homosexuality and same-sex marriage. Now they use words like, we want to affirm, we want to be inclusive, we want to be non-judgmental. So that we find that the largest Lutheran denomination in America, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, basically says they're going to pass no judgment on, on pastors who are homosexuals as long as they remain celibate. The Episcopal Church, of course, ordains, openly ordains gay bishops. The Presbyterian Church, USA, says, quote, that they allow same-sex marriage and ordain openly LGBT members. The disciples of Christ say that they see no distinction between gays and non-gays. The Methodist Church has pretty much done the same. The Moravian Church, amazingly, one of the earliest great missionary movements, has fully embraced homosexuality is an acceptable lifestyle. Even the Mennonite church, not all of them, but many within the Mennonite church have uh, many LGBT affirming denominations. And again, all I can say is what was once unthinkable has become debatable to the point now it's even become acceptable. Acceptable. And the evangelical community, you might say, well, I'm thankful we're not part of that, and that's not affecting us. But it, but it is, and it's interesting because one of the most popular expressions of, of Christianity today, particularly the younger generation, is the Hillsong movement. And earlier this year, many of us were shocked by an interview on CNN. I had to not only read the script, but I had to click on the, te- the, the, the video to watch it for myself to make sure that I was hearing what I was hearing. Because it was coming from a young man, a guy named Carl Lentz, who I have listened to many times preach, and I've enjoyed his preaching. He's one of the shining bright stars of the Hillsong movement, and probably Hillsong, New York is probably one of the most influential ones even in some ways eclipsing their church in Sydney. But in that interview, he made the following statement. He says, when it comes to homosexuality, I refuse to let another human being or media moment dictate how we approach it. Jesus was in the thick of an era where homosexuality, just like it is today, was widely prevalent. The first thing I can say to him is, he doesn't know his history. He doesn't know his history he's wrong. But he goes on and says, and I'm still waiting for someone to show me the quote where Jesus addressed it on the record in front of people. You won't find it because he never did. Matthew 19, 4. (laughs) Matthew chapter 5. Sorry, you missed that, Carl. And then he went on to say, we have a lot of gay men and women in our church, and I pray we always do. It's not our place to tell anyone how they should live. That's their journey. A few months later, he was on the View, and Joy Behar asked him directly, "Does your church teach that abortion is sin?" He responded by saying, "God's the judge. People have to live their own convictions." That's such a broad question to me. I'm I'm going higher. I want to sit with somebody and say, "What do you believe?" Now, I would just like to remind him that Paul said to Timothy, preach the word, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. The reason we have the Bible is to do that, is to correct us, to instruct us. And when somebody says, well, I just want to know what you believe. And and, you know, I don't want to be, I want you to live by your convictions. What if my convictions are wrong and are going to take me to hell? I mean, the whole thing is, The reality is when he was pressed on some of these issues, at least the second one about abortion, after a week of badgering on his Facebook and Twitter accounts, he finally said, well, yes, I guess abortion is sin. And you say, well, why was that so hard to get out of you? And the answer is really simple. We're increasingly moving in a direction where we don't wanna unnecessarily offend people because we tell them that what they're doing is wrong. They're just not gonna hang around. And see, this whole thing about homosexuality came up in his church because one of their team members announced that he and his boyfriend were getting married, and everybody celebrated and didn't see a problem. Now, even more distressing to me than Carl's statement was comments made by somebody who I have read and respected. He's written some phenomenal books that have spoken to me. In fact, he's the author of the very popular translation, The Message. Well, it's not really a translation, it's a paraphrase. It's more like, you know, paraphrases are more like extended sermons. And sometimes they kind of can go off the rails in various places. And certainly the message has some great passages and it has some other ones. And I'm saying, how in the world did he come up with that? But not too long ago, he was asked directly about his position on homosexuality and same-sex marriage. And he says, quote, I have been in churches where there are several women who were lesb- lesbians. I'd just assumed that they were Christian, as Christian as everybody else in the church. In my own congregation, the minister of music left, and one of the young people that had grown up under my pastorship, he was a high school teacher and musician. And when he found out about the opening, he showed up in the church one day and stood up and said, I'd like to apply for the job of music director here, and I'm gay. I was so pleased with the congregation. Nobody made any questions about it, and he was really a good musician. And now I know a lot of people who are gay and lesbian, and they seem to have as good a spiritual life as I do. I think that kind of, that kind of debate about lesbians and gays might be over. People who disapprove of it, they'll probably just go to another church. So we're in transition, and I think it's transition for the best, for the good. I don't think it's something that you can parade, but it's not a right or wrong thing as far as I'm concerned. When Lifeway, his publisher, read this quote in Christianity Today, they immediately told him that either he put out a, recanted his statements, or else they were going to stop publishing his books instantaneously, he had a change of position. <laughs> Which to me made it even worse. Not, not a broken down repentance of saying, I'm sorry I've sinned and I should never have said this and I violated the word of God. But, well, I, I do, I, I don't believe in same-sex marriage. It basically, came back. But you know, the, William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, prophesied over 100 years ago, he said that by the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, he said the church would be preaching something different. He said we'd be preaching a Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, and heaven without hell. And as I look at the church today, I increasingly see us moving in that direction. We preach Christ, but it's not the Christ of the Bible. He's a contemporized version of our own ideas of what the Christ was. The reason the Jews missed Christ the first time when he came is because they were looking for a different Christ, and so they didn't recognize him, nor would they accept him. And when Christ comes a second time, they will not accept him. The Antichrist will be the Christ that many people will accept within the church. He's kind of a, a weak, uh, milk-toasty, kind of kind, loving guy who just kind of loves people because he just can't help himself. And we couldn't, we couldn't picture the Jesus of contemporary Christianity picking up a cord of whips and driving the money changers out of the temple we couldn't picture him telling people that if you don't repent you're going to hell that you couldn't picture him standing in front of the pharisees and saying what are you vipers you hypocrites you whitewashed sepulchers? what do you want what do you know we jesus wouldn't do that because he's nice we teach today in the church forgiveness without repentance we just simply say you know jesus is going to forgive you for your sins he understands what you're going through he knows it's a tough time but repentance means a change of mind. That I've I've changed my view of life. My value system has been altered by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. When I got saved, I suddenly changed diametrically from who I was before I was saved, simply because I could no longer overlook or continued in certain things that I'd once been part of my life without coming under severe conviction of the Holy Spirit salvation without regeneration means that everybody's going to heaven. You don't need to be born again. And heaven without hell, why do you need to be born again? Why do you need to repent? You're going to go to heaven anyway. God's going to make you. And you have to ask the question, why would God force somebody to go to a heaven that they would have to conform to His will when they don't like His will here on earth right now? You see, before the false religious system that's spoken by John in the book of Revelation, he calls it Mystery Babylon Arises, the church, I believe, will already be gone. And I believe that what we see as the church today will no longer exist. As is often expressed by increasing number of Christians and non-Christians, that I don't believe in church, I believe in spirituality. And as a result, by removing any kind of the offensive terms and symbols and and ideas, we basically just develop into this thing that's nothing in particular. Before that happens, I believe that, as Jesus said in Matthew 25, He says that of Christ, that He will separate the people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And the question people are going to have to decide is, am I a sheep or am I a goat? Am I a part of the flock of God, or am I this other thing? Because what I'm trying to say to you is, I believe that as we move forward, that there's be increasing pressure upon you and me to take biblical stands, so that we're forced to become the unpopular ones, the haters the unloving ones, because we simply will say, being a lesbian, being a gay, being bisexual, being a transsexual, being uh, questioning, whatever that is, or a pansexual, like Miley Cyrus, whatever that means. I mean, that's sin. And it will take you to hell. I'm sorry. I don't, don't think I'm better than you because that, I'm just saying that when I saw a sin in my life, I asked God to forgive me because I knew it would take me to hell. And it will take you to hell as well. Wow, that's so hateful. I need to find a safe place to get away from people like you so that my snowflake doesn't melt. Please, friends. And I tell you quite honestly, I know there's some of you right now who are sitting really wrestling with how unloving I'm being. And I would just simply say to you, you've just made my point you just made my point. You've let the culture define your morality, not Scripture. We're not standing around judging people and saying we're better than them. We're not the judge, but God is. And He does not look at sin and just say, oh, it doesn't matter. Ah, come on in, it doesn't care. He gives repeated examples and illustrations in the Gospels, out of the mouth of Jesus. You don't need to take my word for it where he very clearly says, there's a judgment that's going to come and people are going to be held accountable. If you're not ready to stand before God with your sins, you need to stand before God right now and say, God, forgive me for my sins. Give me the grace of eternal life and lead me in the paths everlasting. But be careful, be wary that you're not in that place where you're actually professing to be a follower of Jesus, but you're living in a way that denies his word. You're living in a way that actually denies his word. Father, I pray that you would help us to hear these things with with ears that can hear them. I I know in the end, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will, will yearn over us and you'll strive with us and you'll challenge us. But you've left it in our hands to decide whether or not we're going to surrender to you or we're just going to do our own thing. Lord, I believe that your word makes it super abundantly clear that if we make that choice, we forsake our own mercy. we have forsaken the mercy that you're offering us, and we're choosing to reject you. I may not like the idea that you're going to one day send people to hell, but that wasn't my idea. That was yours it's not about me, it's about you. Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts and that these things would matter to us. That as we look at our friends and our family members, Lord, that not that we would come in with a flaming Bible and start yelling vindictives in the name of Christ over people, but at the same time, Lord, we would start praying for them, that they would come to the knowledge of the truth, that they would know Jesus. That we would no longer assume that somebody who does not know you is going to get to heaven. But we would recognize that there's only one way and one name under heaven by which we can be saved. That it's you who said that we have to confess our sins. We have to humble ourselves before you and ask for your grace and your mercy. God, I just pray that that simple truth would not get obscured in our minds as we live in a complex and confusing world. You said if we know the truth that it would set us free. I pray you'd help us, Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.